This conference will now be recorded. All right. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs 19. Join me as we get started in Proverbs 19. Picking up where we were a week ago. This is now our second online Proverbs class. We were dealing with generosity last week, looking at uh, Proverbs 19, 17, about making a loan to God. Remember that? Making a loan to God. Let me get my Bible up here. Doug and I were talking about Revelation 21, 7 a little bit ago. Let's go to Proverbs 19, 17. One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. And the interesting element, when we are generous in grace, that our transaction transcends humanity, that we are not just simply uh, functioning in the human realm, whereby one believer is gracious to another believer or even an unbeliever, but the person who is expressing grace is communicating a capacity, a spiritual capacity, that has come about because the word of God has transformed them. And so our actions mirror God's actions. Our thinking mirrors God's thinking. This is what happens as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And uh, and then the transaction can transcend humanity, transcend the earthly realm. It's not just a, a, a transaction between two human beings on planet Earth, but actually involves the Lord uh, because it is a loan to the Lord himself. That's how he considers it. And he repays that loan. So anyway, it's a, it's a marvelous thing to consider. And uh, we spent last week dealing with that. And I hope it's uh, sparked some additional thinking uh, related to uh, these things. Because um, apart from the word of God, if the Bible didn't tell us this, the idea that God would be in our debt would be uh, almost blasphemy. I mean, it'd be a, a terrible thing to consider that I'm loaning to the Lord, that that God owes me something now, that God is in my debt? How does that happen? And uh, that would be uh, a really troublesome statement to make, if not for the fact that God himself makes that statement and uh, and puts it in the Bible. So since he put it in the Bible, we know it's true, and uh, God said it. He doesn't lie. We want to understand it as the uh, expression that he uh, designed it for. All right, so that's where we have been. We're going to advance beyond verse... Uh, 17 this morning, we're looking at verse 18, and uh, we'll talk about uh, losing hope. If we think that our kids are never going to learn, uh, that's not true. They will learn. We just have to pray harder and wait longer and trust in God's faithfulness and uh, and keep disciplining. Don't uh, stop disciplining. They need the discipline more than ever. And that's what uh, that's what Proverbs 19, 18 tells us. So let's start with prayer, and then we'll get right to our study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. I thank you, Father, for the blessings we have, even though we can't meet in person. Technology allows us to meet 
in a in a virtual meeting kind of way. And so here we are, Father, and we claim the promise that uh, you are here in our midst, that we are assembled. The assembly has assembled. And so, Father, we are here in the name of Jesus Christ in submission to his authority, asking for uh, for his glory, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so advancing our slideshow. We've covered a lot in this chapter already. And make this a little bit bigger so I can see where we're going. What have we covered and what have we not covered yet? So we were here last week dealing with generosity and grace. It's more than a transaction between human beings. And we dealt with those issues there. Moving on to point 12 now, child training. Child training, instructive discipline is always hopeful. We never do so. You know, the attitude we have as we apply discipline is critical. And uh, Proverbs tells us that that attitude is to be one of hope. It's to be one of hope. So let's pull it up here. Discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. You know, we'll get to that B part, too. You think, well, who would desire his death? Uh, well, you know, it's curious. And uh, there comes a point, And then this is the thing. Because under Mosaic law, death was always the option. It was the last resort that parents would take their children to the city gates and uh, they would pronounce them uh, unrepentant and uh, they would bring them to the tribal elders, which are, by the way, also the family and clan elders. And uh, the uh, the leadership of the city gate would then be responsible if the child does not listen to reproof and it is not corrected then yes, death was the penalty. And the uh, the last resort uh, there was assigned by God as a control mechanism to to keep uh, an uncontrolled generation from rising to uh, to control things. And this is what happens when uh, the uh, generation that uh, that guides the tribe, the generation that guides the clan, we would say today we would say the generation in political power. You know, once the uh, it's kind of curious in the United States of America when the uh, Depression uh, generation and the World War II generation, the baby boomers, and, and in various waves, they they uh, reached adulthood and they entered into business and they entered into politics. And at a point when they essentially have control over the politics of, of a nation, you start to wonder. And so then we have this great rebellion in the 1960s. And uh, then the day comes that they're in charge of things. <laughs> so what happens when the, the flower children and uh, and uh, free love rebels and everything else from the 60s that now they're the they're in government and they're uh, they're running the place. You know, and then you start to wonder what happens when the millennials take over. You know, are we doomed? What happens next? And I know we, we pick on the millennials a lot, but, you know, God in his grace uh, has a, a design for each generation and they come and go. And uh, we should be walking in hope because uh, I think every generation has despaired uh, <laughs> related to the generation following. And uh, why despair? I mean, you're the ones raising them. Why don't you raise them better? And uh, stay in hope. Stay uh, with your hope fixed on the Lord. And we see how these things uh, play out. So in any event. But it's curious to me how I got off on a little rabbit trail there. But it's curious to me. This mechanism that God put in place in under Mosaic law 
to uh, to bring the child to the city gates and the the potential to have that child executed. And there's nowhere in the Old Testament are we ever told how often that, that such a procedure was followed, how frequently it was used. Uh, you know, was it widespread? Was it rare? Kind of things. I kind of think that having it available meant that it didn't have to be used so often because the, the threat of it was enough to, to keep things in check. But uh, anyway, it's a mechanism that God put in, in place for his theocracy. And it's, it's curious to me because it would certainly be a way to keep uh, an entire rebellious generation from uh, from from taking over and because they wouldn't live long enough to be theological rebels that would then seize the uh, the powers of government. So anyway, it's a curious thing to me. Maybe we'll we'll do some more on that down the road. But as we look again at verse 18, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. And And the death there might also be not something you inflict. It might just be the consequences of his sin. That uh, the longer he stays in sin, the more physical consequences there's going to be. You know, the more diseases, the more harm, the more violence, the more if you're uh, if you're living an unbiblical lifestyle and you're surrounding yourself with with unbelievers and and violent men of violence and you throw in your lot with a man of violence thinking, hey, this will be fun. Well, there's consequences for that. And when you're running with the wrong crowd, then then uh, terrible things can happen, including including the sin unto death. So. Um, don't desire that and continue to keep in prayer, continue to keep as long as there's breath, as long as the sun still lives. And and so understand the poetry on this and understand the parallelism. The A part of verse A centers on uh, the hope and the, the B part of verse A centers on his death. And those are in contrast. So uh, as long as he still lives until death is uh, is a reality, that tells us that hope still exists. Child training, instructive discipline is always hopeful, and hope remains while the son still lives. All right, a couple of issues that we want to look at. We've looked at this before. In fact, we've looked at the noun before. I'm not sure that we've really spotlighted the verb so much. Uh, but this discipline, this discipline is the, the Hebrew verb yaser, Y-A-C-A-R, yaser. And this is the, the root verb behind Musar. Now, we've talked about Musar many times. And uh, Musar has come up uh, over and over again. Uh, and so Musar should not be unusual or should not be um, strange for us. M-U-W-S-A-R-C-A-R. People will transliterate that uh, in different ways. But um, I prefer the C just so that we keep our Samak different from our scene and our Sheen. Uh, in any event, Musar speaks about the discipline, the, the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord. And uh, it speaks of discipline, parental discipline, corrective discipline, chastening. This is what God applies to us in terms of parental divine discipline. Uh, he expects us to apply it to our children. Same thing, parental corrective discipline. So uh, the noun is what we're much more familiar with. And this is uh, this is the root verb, the yaser. All right. So if you just stick an M in front of Yasser, you end up with Musar, and that's turning the verb into the noun. Between the uh, the verb and the noun, you've got 35 uses in Proverbs, and uh, especially the ones that we've seen already, including uh, chapter 13, 
And uh, we can run through these again real quickly. won't take a terrible length of time, I don't think. But it's curious to me that we we get to this in uh, – these are the, the ones I'm highlighting especially. They were throughout the parental Proverbs earlier. They were in chapters 1 through 9 repeatedly, again and again and again. And so that's uh, that's definitely worth looking at. Uh, but for this morning, we can uh, look especially at these uses here. Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. So you see the poetry there and the parallelism. Withholding the rod is a hatred application. Applying the rod is a love application. Discipline is to be done in love. And uh, that's why in so many of these verses, we're finding that the mental attitude behind the action is critical. That uh, if you're disciplining your child in anger, that's not uh, that's not the application that God has for us. And that, uh, in fact, the discipline should not be in anger. It should be in hope. It should be in love. That uh, it's, a, it's a hatred dynamic when you withhold the rod. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And that's the verb yaser, diligently. Meaning, uh, again, you're not lazy. You're not a slug with it. That you are faithful in uh, in those applications. Proverbs 22:15 Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child the rod of discipline will remove it far from him and uh we've discussed this in in past classes as well even though it's in chapter 22 and we haven't gotten to chapter 22 yet this concept has come up again and again in uh, a variety of different ways uh but bound up in the heart of a child it's intrinsic to childhood it's intrinsic to uh, immaturity, and uh, and it's not uh, it's not wrong per se, but it it has to be remedied. It has to be it has to be uh, uh, removed, and uh, that's the the nature of it. So humanity is designed because we are relational, because we are in God's image. The nature of uh, childhood uh, for humanity is such that it needs to be shaped it needs to be molded it needs to be disciplined it needs to be beaten okay in the uh, in the in the godly sense okay a sanctified beating of uh of uh the rod of discipline it's good and uh, the the child that does not receive it is not trained by it is not blessed by it and uh grows up to become an adult that needs a much harsher beating when it comes to that because there is a rod for the adult as well, uh, spoken of in Scripture. It's uh, not uh, really practiced in uh, the modern world, at least not in the American, uh, the West. Uh, but uh, corporal punishment still is a feature in a lot of places around this world, even for uh, for adults. Anyway, would we do better if, if America brought it back? Possibly. <laughs> we would certainly be uh, consistent with Scripture. If, uh, you know, Singapore has caning for, uh, I forget, I used to know that kid's name, an American teenager that went over there with a can of spray paint and, and, uh, anyway, committed some vandalism in the streets of, uh, Singapore. And he won't do that again, I guarantee you, because, uh, that American teenager learned about, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the caning on his backside that, uh, he came back with a fresh appreciation for, uh, consequences. 
All right. So this is uh, the purpose. All right. To train it out of a child It's bound up in the heart of a child. There is a heart transformation that has to take place. And this is part of uh, training up a child and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. This is recognizing that human beings raising the next generation of human beings. This is not simply an animal function. This is not a zoological function. And this is where the atheists and the big bangers and the, the Darwinian crowd, they, uh, when they, when they put humanity on the, uh, on the, you know, Darwinian tree, uh, when they, when they put us on this circle of life insanity where we're just a part of nature like an animal, uh, they, they're, they're missing the point. This is not just an animal function of, you know, most animals, uh, there's not a lot of animal training because the, the animal has instinct that's bound in the heart of the animal and the instinct is programmed and the instinct is there by divine design. There could be a few things that are taught in a parental way. If, uh, you know, the, the lions can teach their lion cubs how to hunt, but uh, most of that is instinctive anyway and not instructed. The, uh, the, the true instruction, which is the transformation of a heart is, uh, is entirely the human process whereby believing parents can, uh, give the gospel to their unbelieving children so that the unbelieving children get saved. And then the truth of the word of God can transform the believing children. And that's what we're commanded to do in training up a godly seed and bringing up children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Because without that, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That's the default position. I hope that's clear. We just live in this, our, our culture is so lost. It has drifted so far from the the biblical norms and standards, even the, the, just the general Judeo Christian traditions are, are largely lost, uh, with this idea, uh, that comes about by pure atheistic philosophy that, uh, children are born a clean slate, that they're white and pure is the, that's not true. They're not a white slate. They're not pure. They are sinners that need a savior. And, uh, <laughs> we get that. All right. Let's get past that. Again, I'm at a disadvantage. If we were together in the same room and I could watch heads nodding and I could hear the murmured amens, then I would realize I made the point six minutes ago and I can move on to uh, Proverbs 23:13. All right. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. <laughs> okay. Now, this goes well with, with 1918 uh, this morning because we're not supposed to desire his death. Neither should we fear his death. I think both both ideas are uh, are important to to keep in mind. Although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. And uh, God, in his wisdom and genius, has a specifically designed. It's not a, a accident of evolution. It's uh, it's a design of uh, purpose that uh, God has designed the uh, the gluteus maximus to have such marvelous nerve endings and uh, to be so suited to receive the uh, the pain stimuli that is uh, not disabling, not life-threatening, but very effective to uh, to communicate the displeasure and the uh, the need to adjust thinking. So that uh, seat of education is perfectly designed to uh, to receive what is that the board of education that meets the seat of learning. All right. Also, uh, verse 14, you shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. The benefits of that 
are not just physical. The benefits are not just secular, temporal life benefits for uh, for this life, but actually spiritual and uh, eternal in scope, that there is a soul value for um, corporal discipline. And uh, <clears throat> I think it's curious, uh, all the reading that I've done in secular philosophy, the reading that I've done in philosophy of science and other things, when they try to explore the mind-body problem, and uh, they try to find a relationship between the brain and the mind, and uh, what is the connection between the mind and the body. And a lot of times, uh, these are atheists that uh, that don't accept the existence of the soul. They don't accept the immaterial part of man. They're strict materialists. Uh, but even as a strict materialist, they realize there's something immaterial with the thought process, uh, with intentions, with things of that nature. And so it's curious to me, every every time I've ever read the mind-body problem, it's always been with a mind and brain connection. I've never read an author yet that has approached the mind-body problem uh, from the from the uh, spanking application that the 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 uh, nerve endings in the in the gluteus are such that uh, the mind body problem could be studied that way as well in uh, the benefit to the mind the benefit to the soul when uh, the body is getting spanked all right now besides uh, musar and uh, the uses here we recognize that in the Septuagint when uh, when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. In the Septuagint, uh, the terms that were used were the verb paiduo and the noun paideia. And that Septuagint usage carried across into the New Testament as well. And so it's not always the case. In fact, the New Testament does not always uh, um, bring the uh, Septuagint vocabulary into regular usage. Uh, but in this case, it does. In this case, the New Testament authors are very pleased to employ paiduo and paideia that uh, still in the first century A.D., those expressions communicate the way that they did in uh, the Septuagint time, third century, uh, second, third century, fourth century B.C. And so um, anyway, paiduo and paideia. We know that a pice is a child, and so paiduo is to train a child. And uh, paideia refers to that child training. And uh, these are our favorite New Testament passages that relate to child training and that uh, we can combine with the Proverbs and realize that the Bible is holding parents accountable. The Bible doesn't say that it takes a village. The Bible doesn't expect government to raise the children. The Bible doesn't uh, expect church to raise the children or school to raise the children. The Bible expects parents to raise the children and so these uh these passages as well make make this clear bring this back up again we'll slide it up here hopefully you've copied the top part of the slide already and uh by the way i hope that people are are paying attention robert suggested that if you want to have a local copy of this you can click the little uh camera icon uh, next to your uh, microphone and camera and uh, screen sharing and hang up buttons. Anyway, right there on your uh, control panel is a way to do a screen capture. And in doing a screen capture, you can uh, get this entire slide and then you have it in a in a graphic, I think a JPEG format or some kind of a graphic format to uh, refer to later on. All right. So Ephesians 6.4. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline. That's the paideia, the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's the paideia. And the nuthasia, instruction of the Lord, the admonishment. Put it on their minds. And neither one of these is didasco. Neither one of these is the academic instruction, but it's it's uh, parental discipline instruction and admonishment instruction of the Lord. Hebrews 12 verses. Look at all these verses in Hebrews 12, verse 5 or 6, twice in verse 7, 8, 10, 11. So many applications of Paiduo and Paideia that uh, really saturate Hebrews chapter 12. It forms a, a pretty uh, comprehensive development here. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. We were here not long ago in our, in our Hebrews class. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. And so realize this, that God is dealing with us as with sons. And so he disciplines us. Thank God for that. And if he disciplines us, then we should be disciplining the next generation. He expects us to do that. And so verse 5 mentions this. Verse 6, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. This is uh, this is the issue. I think that uh, we get these parents and they decide instead of following the Bible, they're going to follow um, whatever. They're going to follow uh, Dr. Spock or Dr. Seuss or Dr. Somebody. They're going to follow something that's not scripture. And uh, they're going to they're going to use all of these uh, postmodern and liberal kind of uh, insanity methods, you know, and. Uh, Give them time out. They don't need time out. They need the, they need the pain. <laughs> they need the rod. Anyway, uh, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? And it's for the purpose of discipline that we endure. We endure because we should be learning from the instruction. The disciplined instruction should be teaching us. And it should be teaching us what we weren't going to learn otherwise. And uh, this is what happens. This is why we're we're so blessed to be in this father-son relationship with our God and to then train up the next generation as well to enter into that father-son relationship with our God. Verse 8 says, if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. All right. And so we're not... Uh, some people would want to opt out. Some people think it's unpleasant and they, they want to, they want to embrace a, a form of, of uh, Christianity that doesn't have this kind of discipline. Well, that's, uh, the Bible says you're trying to embrace a form of godliness while you deny its power. Can't do that. That's uh, not what God would have for us to do. It says all have become partakers. So if you're a true ch- a child, if you're legitimately born again, if you're not a bastard, if you are truly saved, then uh, as a legitimate child of God and an heir with Jesus Christ, then this discipline is uh, is the what the Father designed, and we need it. We absolutely need it. And uh, dealt with this uh, not too long ago in Hebrews 12. All right, so that's verse 8. Get down to verses 10 and 11. For they, talking about earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. The outcome is, is that it trains us, that we 
uh, we forsake sin, that we confess and we're restored to fellowship, and that we not only do we keep short accounts, but we also uh, don't repeat those those mistakes over and over again. We uh, we want to grow beyond these particular sin issues. We want to share in His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so the process is not pleasant. Nobody ever said it was. You know, it's not a not a barrel of monkeys. We're not we're not uh, throwing a party saying, "Hoo hoo, I'm loving this discipline." Nobody loves it. The process is not enjoyable. But afterwards, once you uh, get through it, once you learn from it, you've been trained by it. Once uh, you've you've because of that experience, you've determined that's not going to happen again. <laughs> okay. And sometimes younger siblings can, uh, I have, uh, I'm the oldest of four, and I know that uh, uh, the, my three siblings are among the, the most blessed uh, children to ever walk this earth because they uh, they were able to learn by my example, and uh, they could observe my discipline and uh, be warned, fair warning, that uh, they didn't want to experience any of that. So uh, I think because I spent so much time grounded and I spent so much time spanked and disciplined, that uh, that they were they were edified, and so in any event, you learn and you don't want it repeated. Finally, Second Timothy three sixteen, this is what the Word of God does. All Scripture is inspired by God, and uh, I think the postmodern uh, liberal touchy feely, uh, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's diminished Christianity is what it is. It's unbiblical. And uh, they don't want to say it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, because that training in righteousness is tough. That means the scripture chews us out. That means the word of God knocks us upside the head and, and uh, deals with us this way. And uh, just how many how many churches want no part of it? They want the ministry to be, uh, you know, to be the the spiritual church equivalent of, of uh, time out and go sit in the corner and and. Uh, all this uh, non-effective, non-corrective, non-disciplinary uh, approaches to the Word of God. That's not what God designed the Word of God to be. That's not what it is. And uh, we have to accept it for what it is and thank God for what it is. But the Word of God is corrective. All right, so those are the, the verses there. Hope. Here's some fun. Hope. Hope is the tikva. Hope is the cord that hangs in your window. And the Hebrew noun is tikva. Strong's number 8615. So uh, discipline your child while there is hope, is what we're told. And what is hope? Hope is the tikva, cord that hangs in your window. Remember uh, Rahab? Remember the harlot? Remember the cord that she hung in her window? Why did she do that? Well, because God told her to do that. But why did she do that? Because she had hope. Because she was obedient to the word of God. And she had hope. It is a positive faith statement that God will do what he has promised to do. And I think this is this is curious to me. And this is why it's so marvelous. This is why I, I think I wouldn't trade doctrinal Bible churches for anything. I wouldn't trade, uh, you know, if I was attending a church, 
and the pastor wasn't studying from the Greek and the Hebrew, I would ask myself, what are you doing? How are you really feeding your flock? Because you miss things like this. If all you're doing is reading an English text, you miss what the tikvah is all about. And you might read in Proverbs 19:18 and see tikvah and say, okay, I'm going to discipline my child while there is hope. And I would never realize that the very same tikvah that is the hope of Proverbs 19:18 is the cord from Joshua chapter 2, verses 18 and 21. So let's take a look at it. It is a positive faith statement that God will do what he has promised to do. And this is what makes our discipline a faith application as we discipline our children. All right. So just so you see, I'm not lying to you. Proverbs 19:18. Discipline your son while there is hope. Do not desire his death. Here's your tikvah right there. Hope. See that? I highlighted Tikvah that says hope. And, uh, of course, over here it's Elpis. Not only is it Elpis, it's a compound of Elpis. How about that? It's U Elpis. You put an EU prefix in front of Elpis. So it's a good hope. That's, uh, that's interesting. A compound of Elpis is U Elpis. That's interesting to me. Anyway, there's Tikvah. Hope. And if you think I'm lying to you, let's look at uh, Joshua 2 and verse 18. <clears throat> Unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window. So here's this uh, tikvah. Let me go ahead and just color it green so we, we see it there next time we come back and look at it. And I'll color this one green. So that we see it there when we come back and look at it. I should color all my tikvahs green everywhere they show up in the uh, Old Testament. All right, so Joshua chapter 2. And uh, we know the story. We know the spies that have been sent into the land. Joshua has sent the spies into the land. I can make this slightly larger here, and you can still see the point at the top. You know the story, right? Joshua sent two men as spies secretly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. They went and they came to the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And, of course, she hides them. He was told to the king of Jericho, saying, behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And notice she had done that before the the police officer showed up and had hidden them on the roof. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But what she had really done was she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the police officers... Uh, that had been sent to arrest him. The men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Anyway, so now she comes to them on the roof, and she says to the men, now I'm reading through all this. We know the story. I'm not treating you like you don't know the story, but I want to emphasize here the connection to this hope. The connection to this hope should um, 
should form our attitude when we're disciplining our children, when we're applying the uh, the musar to our uh, to the sun while there is still tikbah, while there is still hope. So she comes to the men, and she wants uh, the assurance here. So she comes up to them on the roof. She says to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. So she starts by reciting what she knows. Okay. And that might be useful for us too when uh, we think we have no hope left for, uh, for these children that we're disciplining. Let's start by reciting what we know. We say, Father, I know that uh, you have entrusted this child for me to raise. You know, you could have, this child could have been born to any other parents on the planet, but you chose for this child to be born to me, to us. And so my wife and I, were we're raising this child as best as we can. And, and we start by reciting what we know. We know that, that uh, you have assigned us to, uh, to raise this child. And we know that uh, you're not testing us beyond what we're able to bear. <laughs> and we know that your plan is good. And it's so we kind of recite what we know. And then we get to what we don't know. And we get to what we just have to leave it with the, with the Lord in prayer. Now, for Rahab, after she recites what she knows, she then describes why the people here in Jericho have such a problem. So I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water. We have heard how Yahweh, she uses the name Yahweh in both these places. How does she know Yahweh? We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings and the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. All right, so their judgment was instructive on behalf of uh, Jericho and everybody else that was watching it. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, that is Yahweh, your Elohim, he is God, he is Elohim in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, so once she's recited what she knows and once she recited why this is a problem, Okay, and when we do that, we recite what we know and recite, you know, why this rebellious child is a problem. Then we get to our specific request. We say, God, we need help. So now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. Spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. So that's her request. And she is uh, making her request known. This is what we're commanded to do, uh, to be anxious for nothing, but with everything, uh, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known. She's making her request known that uh, Yahweh is going to destroy Jericho. And in the process of destroying Jericho, Yahweh has the power to destroy Jericho, but also to rescue her. And to rescue her family. And we have to uh, make our request known. If we're going to discipline our children in hope, we're going to recite what we know. We're going to recite the problems we have and why they're problems. And then we're going to make our request known. And we're going to trust that uh, that God is able to, to do what it is we're asking him to do. 
say, Father, we want, uh, we want this child to respond to your discipline. We want this child to, uh, to learn what they need to learn. And, uh, we think that they're so thick headed that they're not going to learn, but they're not so thick headed that, uh, they're beyond the omnipotence of God to, uh, to get through. And, and so we make our request known. Father, we don't want the child to die. And uh, Rahab didn't want her family to die. We don't want our child to die. We want uh, Jesus Christ to be glorified and with this child to live. So the men said to her, our life for yours. Now, it's interesting because she had asked for a pledge of truth, a pledge of truth, and uh, simply a statement. These men are agents of Yahweh Elohim, and if they give a pledge of truth, he's the God of truth, and she will accept any pledge they give. I find that interesting. Boy, the faith that she had was something else. So the men said to her, our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, it shall come about when the Lord gives us the the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And I love this, grace and truth, kindly and faithfully. And uh, the, the, the tandem of grace and truth is a marvelous thing. And so um, our life for yours, she says here, uh, is what they say, the spies, the two spies tell her this. If you do not tell this business of ours. Now, um, she's already lied for them. She's already covered for them. She has to continue to, uh, to keep the secret. She has to continue to not, to not give them up. And uh, should she, in fact, do that, they have promised to rescue her. We will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And it's kind of interesting to me. Is that exactly an answer to what she said? We will deal kindly and faithfully with you. What she had asked for is uh, deal kindly with my father's household and, and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, all who belong to them, deliver our lives from death. She has a pretty comprehensive set of, of requests here. And uh, they kind of boiled it down to, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And uh, apparently that's sufficient. Rahab is, is pleased with the answer they gave. So she let them down by a rope through the window. If her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you. You know, it'd be terrible if they just accidentally stumbled upon you because uh, you're headed the same direction. So go a different way. Hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. So you're going to go this other direction for three days, and then you'll be able to circle back around and get to where you need to be. So the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless. And so this this additional three days is, is interesting because that's uh, she's just biting off, you would think, more than she can chew, maybe, or she's biting off more than she should. Um, she's, uh, that means that's three days that she has to, uh, keep the secret. That's three days that, you know, what if those guards come back? What if other guards come? What if, uh, you know, she has to keep that secret and what if she's tortured? What if, uh, they, they get a confession out of her as far as where they went? Anyway, she's willing to accept the three days. And, uh, anyway, here's the, uh, we're getting to the tikva that they stipulate here. This is the pledge of truth. And then this, I mean, this time to, to focus on the pledge of truth is, uh, is curious because this is the, it's the same hope. They have a hope because God is not a liar. 
God has given a pledge, a pledge of truth, and what God has said, he will do. I hope uh, this is making sense. All right. So, and, uh, we will be free from this oath to you, which you have made us to swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet, this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down. You tie this tikva in the window through which you let us down and gather us to and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. So these are the necessary steps. You know, faith is faith. Faith is an attitude. Faith is a, is a trust or a confidence. But faith also has actions. Like uh, in Passover, you had to smear blood on the lintel and the doorpost. In uh, in this episode, she had to tie the tikva in the window, the window that the spies escaped out of, and she had to gather her uh, father's household into that property. Anyone that was outside that property was not safe. So these were tangible steps that had to be taken in uh, application of the spiritual faith that she had in uh, in Yahweh and his messengers. So uh, it'll come about anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. If you don't live the word of God that you were warned, then the blood's on your own head. And we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, if you don't keep the secret, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. This is definitely a conditional covenant. Her end of the bargain is to keep it secret. Their end of the bargain is to rescue her. Anyway, this is what we have here. Down to verse 21. She said, according to your word, so be it. You know, that's the amen statement, isn't it? According to your words, so be it. God makes a promise. We claim it by faith and we say, amen. According to your words, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the tikvah in the window. So this tikvah, this was her hope. And she, did she have any other hope besides the tikvah, besides the scarlet cord? She had no hope. The only hope she had was that tikvah that she tied in her window. The only hope we have is the tikvah that we cling to when we're disciplining our children. It is a positive faith statement that God will do what he has promised to do. According to your words, so be it. And uh, we make the positive faith statement. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. We claim that. We're waiting, in some cases, years for that child to live long enough to grow old and not depart from it. Because there is a, there's a lot of foolishness that happens in the, in the youth. But when he is old, he will not depart from it. The benefit that happens down the road. All right. That's the tikvah. Proverbs 19, 18, where we are today, uh, the tikvah comes back again in Proverbs 23, 18. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. This is, uh, you got to remind ourselves of this. And when we go carnal, we forget it. When we get our eyes fixed on problems, we forget it. If we're just walking in darkness and full of doom and gloom, believe me, I know. I am the biggest pessimist in Austin Bible Church. I know that for a fact. And uh, so when I'm out of fellowship, when I'm carnal, there, uh, this is a verse I need to remind myself of. Surely there is a future. That uh, when I'm carnal, I think, well, there's no future. There's no future and the president is miserable. And what's the point? Well, no, there is a future. 
so that your tikvah will not be cut off. God's got a plan. He's got an alpha to omega plan, and we're on track as we're headed that direction. There is a future. There's a context for this, verse 17 that precedes verse 18. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. And I think sometimes that's where much of the discouragement comes in, because you look around and you see, it sure seems like those sinners are getting away with everything. And uh, I'm wasting my time serving the Lord. And is there really a benefit to walking in the light? And, uh, you know, David grew discouraged with that. A lot of us get discouraged with that. No, there is a future. In the future that we have, there is a latter end. Yeah, keep, there is a, acharith uh, is the Hebrew here. Pretty sure. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future. Yesh and acharith. There it is. Surely there is an acharith. And your hope will not be cut off. <laughs> anyway, Doug, here's another verse for you. When uh, people mock eschatology and they say, what's the point in studying the end times? Well, there is an end times. There is a plan. And that's all part of our hope. It's according to his promise. We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I think if you get your eyes off of God's plan, uh, that's the quickest way in the world to uh, to have your hope cut off. Your elpis cut off. All right. So that's good. Nice to see that. Proverbs 24, 14. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. So live in the word of God. Live in it. Dwell in it. Remain in it daily. Allow the wisdom to shape your soul. That the obtaining of wisdom. Who can find it? Do you have to dig to the deepest mind? you have to climb to the highest heaven? God has made his wisdom known. He has revealed his wisdom. It is nearby. And God is nearby and knowable. And as we embrace wisdom, we know there's a future. We know there's a hope. I think these are, uh, I like quoting these better than I like quoting that Jeremiah passage that I think is misapplied. Proverbs uh, 29.20. No, did I miss one? I missed 2612. Let's go to 26.12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. If you're going to reject God's wisdom and substitute your own wisdom, if you're going to uh, be boastful and prideful and you think that you've got it all figured out, that's a man that's wise in his own eyes, and God calls you a fool. The wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. And if you're going to dismiss God's wisdom and embrace the world's wisdom, you're a fool. You're wise in your own eyes. And there's no tikva that comes with that. There's no tikva to the man who is wise in his own eyes. The fool has more hope than, than that man. There's more tikva for the fool than for him. Finally, uh, Proverbs 29, 20. You see a man who is hasty in his words. There is more hope. There's more tikva for a fool than to him. And I think these go hand in hand. The man that's wise in his own eyes is going to be the fastest to start blabbing his lips and talking, uh, displaying his own uh, ignorance to all that will hear. You know, people that have uh, less wisdom sure seem to really want to tell you how much they have. And uh, they get very talkative. We don't want to be hasty in our words. There is more tikva. 
for the fool than for him. There's your tikvah right there. All right. Glad we got through those. Let's look at verse 19. And I think, um, I don't know, I go, I go back and forth on this. Let me blank that for a moment. Let's look at our verse. Okay, let's not blank it for a moment. Let's just look at our verse. Proverbs 19, 19. We've got eight minutes left in this hour. And I've prayed over this and I've wondered, is this something we can spend a whole hour on? Or is this something we can teach in eight minutes and let it go? Is this something that we might come back to in a future proverb, I think? Um, is this something that we might revisit in uh, in, a, in a New Testament book study as we come back to it again? But there is a critical difference. Let's look at Proverbs 19, 19. It says, a man of great anger will bear the penalty. For if you rescue him, you will only have to do it again. If you rescue him, he will only have to do it again. And um, this is this is profound. I mean, of course, all the Proverbs are. God wrote it. It's uh, eternal. It's infinite. But I just see some temptations and I see some problems and I see some applications and I see. And really. I don't know that the poetry really makes this verse a tandem with verse 19, 18 or not. Discipline your son while there is hope. Do not desire his death. A man of great anger will bear his penalty. Is this really a continuation from verse 18? Are these linked together in such a way? Possibly. Uh, and whether they are or they aren't, there's still a concept here in verse 19. This man of great anger, he's not living wisdom, he's not living the word of God, he's not allowing doctrine to shape his thinking. He's certainly not uh, obeying the be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down on your wrath. He's a man of great anger, he's carnal in this, and there's going to be consequences. He's going to bear the penalty. And if you rescue him, why are you rescuing him? Why are you trying to mitigate the penalty? Why are you trying to counteract what God is doing? If he's, if he's under divine discipline, don't get in the way of that. Even Gamaliel figured that out. If this is not of the Lord, it'll come to nothing. But if God is in it, we don't want to, we don't want to be fighting against what God is doing, do we? And this is true. I think a lot of times bailouts, spiritual bailouts, temporal bailouts. I think a lot of times, um, you know, a believer is under darkness and inner consequences. And we're going to fight against God because we're going to we're going to mitigate the consequences. Well, if we mitigate the consequences, how do they learn the lesson that they're supposed to learn that God designed those consequences to teach? We've got to be very careful here. And so I phrase this under point 13. There is a critical difference between helping a brother in need, which we should always do. And attempting to rescue one under penalty. To rescue one under penalty. Such rescue doesn't help and it never ends. So here we go again and here we go again and here we go again. And the reason why this sin cycle keeps repeating itself is because we keep bailing out the knuckleheads that aren't learning what they should be learning. And until they learn the spiritual lessons, 
God's going to keep assigning those consequences. And then we're going to get some consequences because we are violating the divine discipline. God's assigning divine discipline and we are uh, fighting against it. So the question here, any examples, myriad of examples, myriad of examples. You know, a believer comes under divine discipline and we try to mitigate it. We try to bail them out. We we throw money at a problem. And, and really, the uh, the discipline God assigns was supposed to be getting their attention. And we're making it like, oh, well, it's okay. It's okay. And so they don't adjust their behavior. They don't change their behavior. And it's, um, yeah, there's myriads of disciplines. I don't know. We'll come back to this next week. I'll uh, I'll figure it out. Either I'm really divided. Part of me wants to spend a whole hour on this. And part of me wants to uh, let it go at point 13 and, and move on. So uh, I'll, I'll pray some more over and we'll see what uh, what we have. Because the, uh, and it's going to be, I want to be generic enough about it because I think we, uh, as a church, we know individual stories and examples and, um, and it it gets very subjective very quickly. And when, anytime I do, then, then the people involved get offended or family members get offended and, uh, and so forth, I think. Um, so. I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to pray because I think there's entire industries, uh, there's entire ministries that are saturated around um, diminishing the penalties and making it so there are no consequences. There are no penalties. There are no hardships. We're going to, we're going to pave the way and we're going to provide all things. And, uh, and I think, we're harming the uh, brother or the sister when we do that. When we take away every divine discipline consequence, well, then what's the problem with doing it again? You know, because and the secular term is called enabling the uh, the Freudian, uh, Adlerian, Jungian, uh, the different uh, unbelieving psychiatrists will will call it enabling. Uh, and that's that's a secular term I don't like to use, but there's a biblical equivalency for this because you are participating in the unfruitful deeds of darkness and you are supporting darkness. You may not be doing the deed, but you're supporting the deed. And uh, scripture says, don't do that. Come out from among them and be ye separate. So uh, anyway, yeah, pray for that. And we'll see if. Uh, if God provides this, because I think there's a there's a value in this. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. We uh, commit to you this class and uh, study in the coming week. If you desire for this class to be expanded, I believe it would be fruitful. So, Father, I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.